Good morning. Good morning. My name is Dan Weaver. I'll be preaching today. I'm associate pastor here, and as Brother Stephen has a, a rare Sunday off. Uh, we are concluding our Summer in the Miners series today, and I was thinking as I was preparing the sermon, think of the plight of the prophets, how it would have been for this several hundred year time in history of the minor, that the minor prophets span, where you had to be the guy to go and tell the king, or go and tell the people, or go and tell those in power that they were doing wrong and that God was about to judge them. <laughs> how well do you think that message would have been received? I think uh, we are reading as we study this, uh, and I'm appreciating it more as we've gotten into this series, uh, just how much these men suffered so that we could read these words that are on the page here for us today. Um, Malachi is a wonderful, I'm really glad I got to teach it. I've, I always thought that, that no one learns more about a topic than the teacher. And so no one learns more about the Bible than the preacher. And so I appreciate having the chance to teach Malachi to you so that uh, I could learn all these treasures that are here. So if you haven't found it already in your Bibles, I'd like to ask you to go there. If you've got paper and pen, I think there's going to be some things that you'll want to write down that we talk about today. But today's sermon is brought to you by the letter S. The letter S. I have with me, as I usually do when I speak, my goodies bag. And the first S is going to be a soap box. We'll get to that later. Now, I've already gotten some uh, consternation on this. I understand this is not a real soap box. The soap boxes that are for sale now at places like Walmart and um, well, Sam's Club and other places, I don't think they would support my weight. And so I wasn't going to get up here in front of 200 people and stand on a soapbox. So I created a soapbox that I think will work. We also have a prayer shawl. We have steel-toed boots. And we have a shofar. Um, the shofar today is, in case anybody tries to fall asleep during my message, I'm going to blow this thing. Now, Brother Steve, I'm going to leave you alone because I know you work hard and it, you need this Sunday afternoon nap for, for your schedule. And George, George, I'll leave you alone as well. But anyone else tries to fall asleep, I'm going to have to play the shofar for you here today. Let's go ahead and jump into Malachi. The name means my messenger my messenger. Uh, we don't know a lot about him, like what his career or what his occupation was. We don't know exactly where he lived, much about his family, but we do know um, that his name means my messenger. That phrase is actually found in chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, I will send my messenger. He says, I will send Malachi to tell you these things. I will send my messenger to you. Second thing we know is 47 of the 55 verses are quotes directly from the mouth of God, straight from him, from his mouth to your ears, or from his pen to your eyes, that there's very little Malachi in Malachi. God comes to him and says, I want you to say this to my people, or I want you to write this to my people, and that's what Malachi says. We do know about the time he lived. He lived right around 400 B.C. It's a time in which Jerusalem's walls and the temple had been rebuilt. Now, the last two weeks, as Brother Stephen preached, he preached on Haggai and Zechariah, two prophets who lived about 100 years prior to Malachi. And their complaint with the people at that time was, you've been back, you know, the people were taken captive by the Babylonians in 585. For 70 years, they were held captive. So about 515, they return. 
And God comes to that next generation and says, okay, you've had time to build yourself really nice houses. You have great businesses. You've taken care of yourself very well. Now I want you to take care of me. Rebuild my house so the people can come and worship me and rebuild this city's walls and make this city great again. Well, those people listened. And if you study uh, the Bible chronologically, the books that come right before Malachi would be Ezra and Nehemiah. And those are the men who led the rebuilding of Jerusalem with God's help. They did listen to Haggai and Zechariah and they rebuilt the temple. But we see here in Israeli history, the same thing that I see in American history, even playing out in our world today, the, how generations work. How there'd be a time, we see it first of all in the book of the Judges, but then it continues through the times of the kings and the prophets. How there'd be a generation that would call out to God, God, we're suffering. Maybe it's disease or it's war, it's some other tribulation. But Lord, we are suffering. We can't get along except we have your help. And the people turn to God. And then what does God do? He blesses them. And then that generation raises up kids saying, you've got to follow God. Now this next generation doesn't understand it completely because they didn't experience it but they had their parents telling them well about the third generation later is a generation of people that don't really remember what it was like and haven't continued to tell the next generation and then God has to judge them it's a gener generations that fall away from the Lord and I thought boy do you not see that in American history as well um, I remember talking to my grandpa when he was still alive, how uh, he said that uh, going through the Great Depression and going through World War II, he told me one time that you didn't have to ask people if they went to church, you asked them where they went to church, because everybody went to church. It was just understood in his generation, because they were crying out to God, God save us from this incredible poverty, God save us from, I mean, think about a generation raised wondering if the Germans were going to land on one coast and the Japanese might land on the other coast and destroy the world as we knew it. Well, these people knew how to pray and they knew how to trust God. But here we are a few generations later. And in this text in Malachi, it's about a hundred years after this great generation that rebuilt Jerusalem. So it's about three, maybe four generations later. And again, they have fallen away from God. They've, they've fallen into a spiritual apathy and a moral laziness. He breaks down the book really well. The first three chapters in Malachi, he has eight accusations against his people. Eight times God comes and says, here's something you're doing wrong, something you need to correct, something you need to understand about me. And every single time, the people question God. Let me read some of them to you because I, I kind of saw a pattern. Maybe it's because I was a youth pastor so long. Uh, I felt this pattern pop up. But like in verse 2, he says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? It is the priest in verse seven, 6, I'm sorry, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? And it just reads to me like a bunch of did you ever have those like smart mouth, snarky, adolescent age kid in your life? Did you ever have anybody like that in your life? I was going to say, as I look out, I can see both sides. I can see some who have done that to me, but then I see some who I've done that to. Because <laughs> I've got some of my former teachers are in the crowd. Um, Oh, and a little bit later, um, chapter 3, he says, You have wearied the Lord's with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? 
Uh, Will a mere mortal rob God? How do we rob you? And so eight times, God says, you're doing something wrong. You got to change. I love you so much. I want you to be good. I want you to be perfect. Here's the things that you've got to correct. And eight times they question God. And then eight times God in his immortal patience answers them. Here's what you're doing wrong. Here's what it is causing. Here's the problems that come from it and why your life is suffering because of your behavior. And so God in this patience, this we're going to see in Malachi from the first three chapters. I've noticed as I looked at these eight that they uh, boil down into really three areas. He's talking to them about faithfulness, finances, and family. And isn't that great that in English today, those all start with the same letter. But he's telling them you've got problems in your homes, problems with your money, and you've got problems in staying faithful. And it made me think of how uh, to the Laodiceans in uh, Revelation, John writes, you've lost your first love. You, know, you used to love me, but now that it's fallen away. Then chapter 4 is a beautiful chapter, very short, but it's messianic, points to the Messiah, as many of the prophets do. They have a section where it says, yeah, things are bad now, times are tough, but hang in there. It's going to get better. Jesus is coming. The man, they, uh, they, I guess they didn't know his name, Jesus at the time, but the Messiah is coming. And the only place in Scripture we find here in Malachi, the last three verses before there's 400 years of silence where he talks about the one who would come that would prepare the way for the Lord. We know it today to be John the Baptist, but he calls him a second Elijah will come. And when he comes, he will prepare the way for the Lord to enter into the world. So let's go ahead and get started with the areas we must renew. Actually, let's go ahead and say a word of prayer and then uh, we'll ask the Lord to speak to us and through us today. Father God, thank you so much for the opportunity to be in your house. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study Malachi. We thank you for these words and what they say to us and what they speak to us. And we just ask that you would guide our hearts, guide our minds, and let us hear today through these words what it is we need to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to focus then on the three areas that Malachi focused on, areas in which we must renew our faithfulness, our finances, and our families. And I think this first scripture tile I'm skipping, and I'm sorry, I should have told you much sooner than now. But could we go on, Brad, to chapter 3? Look with me, if you would, please, chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Again, Malachi chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. He's saying, you're teaching in your homes, in your synagogues, in your temples, that it's not really necessary to serve God anymore. It's, it's, it's an idea that has come and gone. Is that something that applies to our world today? Yeah, yeah, everywhere you turn. And he's saying, you're teaching that you don't have to, that following God will do nothing for you. 
So people who have lost their memory of their history, they're saying, what has God ever done for us? So we should stop serving him. And their proof of that is, look how the wicked people prosper and look how the righteous people suffer. Is that true? Do wicked people prosper? Do righteous people suffer? I think there's a very real rule at play in the world that says if you live for the world, if your priorities are focused on the things of this world, you will have short-term successes, but long-term consequences. Let me say that again. Living for the world does give you short-term successes, long-term consequences, but living for God, living for God gives you short-term consequences, but long-term success. We, church, we should not be jealous of the world's temporary successes because it is not the gain that we desire. Read with me, if you would, Romans chapter 8, verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Our time is not now. Our time is in the future. When Christ returns and we live with him forever, that's what, we're focused, that's what our focus is to be on, not upon the gain in this world. If our focus is on gaining this world, he says, you will lose your soul. And he talks about faithfulness. He talks also about finances. That's where we come to the second S in today's show. Steel-toed boots. These things are great, aren't they? You ever uh, have a really hard job to do? Need to split a log and you can't quite get it, so you just kick it till your shoes <laughs> bend it into submission. Um, Steel-toed boots protect us from our toes, from, uh, from being stepped on. And Malachi and the good Lord are about to step on some toes today. Um, they get, he gets very personal in his accusations. And a lot of it's personal to us today because we still haven't learned. Here we are, 2,400 years later, still living the way God would have us not to do. Um, Mrs. Loudon. Mrs. Loudon was a teacher I had for both second and third grade at Reading Elementary, and I'm sure people in this room remember Mrs. Loudon. Mrs. Loudon had to discipline a young Danny Weaver. Um, this, this may come as a shock to some people in this crowd. I've got my sister and her, her husband here today. And they, this will be news to them that young Danny Weaver was very precocious. Um, he tended to talk a lot, when, especially when he should be listening. And he tended to want to try to entertain the class while the teacher was trying to instruct the class. And uh, along one of these uh, tears I was going on, uh, Mrs. Loudon had to get up from her desk and walk around, come down the aisle, and stand beside little Danny Weaver and pick him up so his toes were no longer touching the earth and shake him. <laughs> she had to shake him to wake him. <laughs> and she got my attention. And it was, nah, I was going to say days, it was months before little Danny Weaver thought of Mrs. Loudon's class as his personal comedy club uh, any longer. She shook me. She got my attention. 
and it changed me for the better. And I feel like now God's going to go into a section of Scripture where he's going to pick us up and he's going to shake us, and it's going to be for our own good. Read with me, if you would, please, chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse. Your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring me the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. It says you're not giving the tithe that, that God demands. The, the concept of the tithe began with Abraham. Um, Abraham, when, uh, before Isaac was born anyway, had a time where he fought against four nations of the north. And God gave him a victory, one man against nations. And uh, the plunder of that war he took to Melchizedek, who was priest in Salem, which became Jerusalem later. And from that time on, became a biblical principle that the first 10% of whatever a man made belonged to God. Not the last 10% or whatever was left over after the man had done everything. It was the first 10 and it was the best 10%. And that tradition carries on to the church even today. The idea of it is that by giving the 10%, you are saying, God, I realize that the reason that I am who I am is because you made me. Not that I am so wonderful, or I am so intelligent, or I recognize a good opportunity, and I work really hard, and I am deserving of all that I have, it's saying, God, no, you made me who I am. You gave me the opportunity. You put me in this place at this time, and you've given me every success that I have. And my way of saying thank you to you is I give you the first fruits. I give you the first 10%. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. Jesus is teaching his greatest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And in the midst, he tells them, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think God's thinking this as well. Where does God want your heart to be? He wants your heart to be in your church. He wants your heart to be in a relationship with him and with his other children. And if your money is there, your heart will be there. If your money's not there, I mean, really, think about what you spend most of your money on. Isn't your heart wrapped around those things? And notice the test in verse 10. Thought so is the opposite of what Jesus says. Jesus said once, do not test the Holy Spirit. And on the mountain, he tells the devil, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. But God here says of himself, test me in this. You want to test God? Test me in this. See if you can outgive me. See, if you can give more than I can, he says, if you would just, as a nation, come back to giving the tithe, I would open the floodgates of heaven. Can you imagine what that would feel like? The floodgates of heaven in blessings over you. See if you can outgive God. And then the third thing Malachi tells us about is family. His family. Let's read together chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. And this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and sighing, because he no longer gives attention to the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? 
because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your marriage companion and your wife by covenant. Is there a second part of that, brother? Yes. But not one does, I'm sorry, yeah, but not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And why the one? He was seeking a godly offspring. Be careful then about your spirit and see that none of you deals treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of armies. So be careful about your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. We're going to talk for a minute about divorce, about unfaithfulness, about cheating. And I know it's a touchy subject, so I want to be sure that I speak tenderly and walk softly because I know there are many in this room who have been hurt by divorce, been hurt by cheating and unfaithfulness. You'll notice in the scripture we just read, God agrees with most of us in this room. He hates divorce. Why? He sees what it does to children. He sees what it does to families, to homes. He sees what it does to reputations, to churches. He hates that. Jesus told us that, yes, God hates divorce, but through Moses, he allowed it because he knew the hearts of men. He says there also that he hates it because of every divorce, there was a man who once stood in front of God and said, I will provide and protect for this woman. And then by divorcing her, he causes her pain and he breaks his promise. See, family was supposed to be an illustration to the world of the relationship God would have with his people. We're told that when Jesus comes back, it'll be like a groomsman who's coming to take the church, his bride that the way God treats us is the way that a man treats his wife and children. And he says, I've been faithful to you and you have been unfaithful to me. You bring dishonor on God by calling yourself a child of God and then not living like him. And in verse 14, as I said, we take it a step further where he says, don't be unfaithful. Staying married but being unfaithful is no better. Don't cheat. Men, don't flirt. Don't test the waters. Don't try to become provocative with a woman who's not your wife. Keep your promise. Protect the one God has called you to keep your promises to. And then he talks about the day of the Lord is near in chapter 4. Last words are very powerful, aren't they? Have you ever noticed um, in a movie when you're watching or a book you're reading or a TV show how 
like one of the main characters, say it's the main villain or the main hero, they might get sh- shot with a laser bolt 30 or 40 times. Bah, 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 bah. Everybody else gets shot once. Oh, they immediately die. But the star of the show, the star of the show gets hit about 50 times and then is still able to go over and sit down on a rock and then all their friends and family come and they're able to share these valuable moments with everybody. And then once he finally passes, they all jump up because all the other warriors on the other side stop the battle so that they could have this precious moment moment, and then they turn around and, ah, we're going to get you. Um, But have you ever noticed that many times in these movies, TV shows, books, the last words are the most important? Like, that sets the tone for the movie. That's the whole point of the whole movie, is what the main character says right before they go. And I think it happens here in Malachi. This is the last word of God to his people for 400 years. And the Bible that Jesus would read would end with this section right here. This was his revelation. And I think it's powerful for us. We need to understand it, and we need to take the joy that's there. Would you read with me, please, Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of armies, so that it will leave them neither root nor branches, It's really positive, isn't it? (laughs) I promised you a positive scripture to end on. Hold on, don't, don't give up. It's coming. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and frolic like calves from the stall. You will crush the wicked underfoot, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I am preparing, says the Lord of armies. To me, it's just like Revelation ends. Yes, there's going to be hard times. And in the first three chapters of Malachi, he's talking about things you got to change. If you don't change it, you're going to get punished. Yes, life is going to be hard. But for those who are faithful, the people who are doing the bad things to you will be burned and gone just like a, a twig in the fire is burned and gone. They'll be gone. Don't worry about them anymore. Because one day you're going to be in a place that's full of joy and healing. And I love how uh, uh, I said, whenever I study for a message or, or a sermon, um, yeah, there it is, verse 2. Um, I'll study several translations to see what the different uh, theologians have done with the scriptures. And in about three of them, I found this is you'll be so full of joy, you'll be like fat, you'll be like jumping fat little cows. <laughs> okay, and I thought, boy, isn't that funny how things have changed over the years? Because I would probably get in a lot of trouble if I, especially in children's church, if I told the little angels over there, hey, you guys are going to be so happy today. You're going to be jumping around just like fat little cows. <laughs> um, and then he says, here's how you'll tell Messiah. Many of the scriptures um, in, the, in the prophets are messianic in nature. And they say, here's how you will tell Messiah. He'll have healing in his wings. I preached a sermon, and I'll just do real quickly an illustration for you to help you understand. But boy, this is so powerful to me. This is a prayer shawl, a prayer shawl called a uh, talit. And uh, I really don't have time to tuck it in, I think, as well as you're supposed to. But um, we were told that Jesus healed several different ways, but most commonly he healed by touching or he healed by using his voice. Remember when Lazarus was in the grave, he said, Lazarus, come forth. Or when he was in the storm, peace be still. And what happened? Everything, just as, as he created with words, 
he could manipulate the, the earth with words. He also, by touch, uh, many times made mud, put it in their eyes, touched them, and they would receive their sight or, or they, would, they would receive their, uh, their healing. And we're told here that he'll have healing in his wings. There's one place in Mark chapter 5 where we're told about a woman who had a bleeding. So she had a bleeding for 12 years that never stopped. And she went to every doctor. She took every therapy, every medicine she could think of. And she now was out of money. Nothing had worked. So not only had she tried, you know, she, she had no doctors. She had no healing. She had no hope. And she thought, I'll go to Jesus. Many times we, it's our last answer too. But I thought, I'll go to Jesus. And she knows, I just have to get close enough to touch the hem of his garment. If I could touch the hem of his garment, you see, there'd be healing in his wings. This is what a, a Jewish man would wear in Jesus' day. And actually, when I was in Israel, I saw them on the Friday night. Several people put them on. Um, Talit is worn over top of your regular clothes. You'd dress however you were going to dress for that day to go to the synagogue or to go to the, the, the temple wall. And when you got there, of course, then you'd put the part with the scriptures up over your head. But to put it on, you kind of do what I just did there. You find the corners, you play it out. And this bottom part is, can you guess what that's called? There's a tassel there to remind them of several prayers and scriptures. Those are called the wings. Now, why would those be called the wings? <laughs> Silly, isn't it? And it says he has healing in his wings. And the woman knew that if I just get close enough to touch the wings, because Malachi 4.2 says there's healing in his wings. And Jesus has the garment, the hem of his garment, it says, gets touched. And he turns around in the crowd and says, who touched me? And the disciples said, well, Jesus, half of Capernaum is touching you right now. There's a crowd here. And he says, no, someone touched me and power went out of me. And the woman confessed and he told her her faith has healed her. Her faith to realize that when Jesus comes into your life, what will he bring? He'll bring healing and he'll bring joy. Who in the room today wants healing and joy? I do. You do. If you want to represent Jesus to the world, bring those around you healing and joy and you'll prepare their hearts to receive the Lord. Let's read on. Chapter 4, we'll finish the text, verses 4 through 6. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Can we, I'm going to leave that scripture up there for a little while if we could, please. It's the only place in all the Old Testament, as I teased at the beginning, that we find this prophecy of a second Elijah, that Elijah would come back. And that's another way you'll know Messiah is here. Um, Jews still look for Elijah today. I know at Passover meals, they still set a place for him so that in case he happens to come this year, they'll be able to welcome him and entertain him. But we would know that someone would come who would prepare the world to receive Messiah. 
And when he comes, what would his job do? What would his job be in verse five? I'm sorry, verse six. He'll turn the hearts of who? The parents to the children, and the hearts of the children will therefore be turned to the parents. In the original Hebrew, it says they're fathers. Now, of course, they used fathers to mean parents, but it said literally fathers. Our job, men, our job, women, will be to turn the hearts to our children. You want to prepare your home for Jesus? You want to be John the Baptist to the world? I think we're all called to be John the Baptist. We're all called to bring people to the point where we can introduce them to Jesus and then get out of the way. You want to bring Jesus to your home? You want to be John the Baptist to your home? Prepare your kids' hearts to focus on them. And that's where we're going to step up on a soapbox. Now, I was totally planning on standing on a soapbox because I thought that would be really clever to have a soapbox moment on a soapbox. But this thing in practice, I fell off of it. And that sounds funny, but it would not be funny to me if it happened when I'm delivering the message. So I'm going to metaphorically step up on a soapbox. Men and women in the church, for too long we have blamed society for the way children act today. We said, oh, it's those phones. Oh, it's those computers. Oh, it's their friends that they've got. Oh, it's this, it's that. It's this technology. It's the peer pressure that they're under. Oh, they have to grow up so fast. We have found 101 things to blame when we're told in scriptures, it's our job. It's our job to have the kids' hearts focused on us. A child's first reflection of God is found in their father. And then they can transfer all those same emotions and, and thoughts and attributes to a heavenly father. And men, we have got to do the work at home. It might mean we have to put down our video games. It might mean we have to play a little bit less golf. Or we have to stop the childish hobbies or the diversions or the interest or the things that we get ourselves wrapped into that take us away from making our children our top priority. If your hearts are focused on your children, first priority after God, God first, family second, then what will be the response? Where will the children's hearts be turned? To you. And you'll be John the Baptist. You'll lead them to God. And then you'll get out of the way. I think the bottom line thread, I always try to find a bottom line. What's he saying? What does this mean to me? I, try, I think the bottom line of Malachi is prove to God that you are who you say you are. He talked earlier about how we have to sacrifice our selfish joys of today to prove we are faithful. We have to give him his 10%, the first 10%, and stop robbing God. We need to keep our vows to our wives to protect her body, her heart, her soul, and her mind. And we need to be the man of the house, men. Someone who our kids can look up to. And we need to bring the healing of Christ, joy, to every home. Would you pray with me, please? Father and our God, thank you so much for the opportunity we have again to be in your house. Thank you for welcoming us, for preparing this place with your spirit, and for considering us worthy to bear your name. Father, we just ask that you would find us faithful, 
You know, it's hard being a generation that is famous for going away from you. It's hard to convince people who won't otherwise turn to you. But Father, I just pray that you won't find our mouths full of excuses, but you'd find us full of humility and praise. Father, help us to understand what we need to 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 succeed in this world today. And Father, we so look forward to your returning to that time where we can be with you forever, singing praises in your presence. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.